Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Housing Wire digital producer Victoria Wickham, and this is the Daily Download. Today, we're sharing a crossover episode of the Housing News Podcast, which features an interview with Robert Dietz, who is the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Economics and Housing Policy at the National Association of Home Builders. In this episode, Dietz joins Housing Wire Editor-in-Chief Sarah Wheeler to discuss how low housing inventory and rising lumber prices have contributed to an increase in construction costs and why this makes it harder for builders to introduce affordable housing supply in the market. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Extraordinary challenges demand extraordinary solutions. CoreLogic is uniquely positioned to help you navigate this historic disruption. Whether it's virtual home showings, flexible employment verifications, or automated loan modification engines, CoreLogic delivers the data-driven solutions, targeted insights, and deep domain expertise trusted by the nation's most successful mortgage lenders. Explore how CoreLogic can help you today. Visit corelogic.com forward slash COVID-19. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, and this is the Housing News Podcast. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Robert Dietz, the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for Economics and Housing Policy at the National Association of Home Builders. Robert, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Housing News. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to join you today. You know, we have a lot to talk about today. Home building is front and center again. Um, given the inventory shortage and lumber prices, and I'm really excited to dive into those topics. You know, but first, we like to get to know our guests a little bit, so let's start there. Um, you have a PhD in economics from Ohio State, so what drew you to study economics? Well, as a, as a student, I was always interested in history and, and government, particularly American history. Um, I was good at math and science, but maybe a little less interested in physics. So economics was an interesting blend of, of all those fields, and it was a great way to study growth and development of society. Um, I also liked maps, so I was drawn in particular to spatial economics, uh, which led me to uh, work in the, in the real estate sector. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, that, you know, I mean, there's so many different parts of economics you can go into, so it's, very, it's a very specific area. I was really interested in how things occurred on, on maps and uh, looking at local government policy and, and housing development and, and business location decisions. And those, of course, are, are key issues in the housing industry. One of your fields of expertise is taxation, and you worked on the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, which advises members of Congress on tax legislation. You know, what were some insights you gained from working there that inform what you do today? Details matter a lot, uh, which is an easy thing to say just about uh, any, any field, but uh, joint tax is one of those unsung institutions in D.C. Uh, they, they act like a referee uh, scoring tax bills to say how much a particular policy change would raise or, or lose in revenue. And uh, of course, no one really likes a referee, but uh, working there was great because you got into the nitty gritty details of the intersection of economics and, and tax law. And it gave me three years to really kind of study housing from that really kind of detailed congressional policy perspective. 
which was useful because when I first came to the National Association of Home Builders, I did tax and policy work uh, there for my first 10 years before becoming chief economist. And tax law really is critical for real estate. Um, just as an example, in 2008 to 2010, I did a lot of work on the, uh, the home buyer tax credit back from the, the Great Recession. So interesting to see the, the kind of uh, crossover that you get in something like that, that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this is, you know, is going to be so helpful, but clearly it is. Yeah, and, and tax law is not something they teach you when you go and get a PhD in economics. Uh, and I was sort of uh, learning it, kicking and screaming it as I went away. But as I said, details matter a lot. And uh, there's, there's models and there's data and then there's the real world. And uh, joint tax really deals with the, the nitty gritty real world details, uh, which you really have to examine when you look at uh, business sectors or look at how policy is going to affect uh, real people and real businesses. Yeah, super interesting. Um, let's talk about home building specifically. We're going to dive in. We all know there's a housing inventory shortage, right? I, I think every other uh, story that we write about it, we you know we have to bring it up because it's driving so many other things, right? It's driving so many other factors here. But um, can you give us some perspective on where we are now compared to where we've been at maybe historically? Yeah, some work that my team at NHB has done. I, I think we have a housing deficit of about a million homes. And that's the combination of both uh, apartments and single family homes. Uh, estimates vary. I think most economists agree there is a housing deficit. Uh, Freddie Mac had an estimate of about uh, two and a half million homes as a, as a shortage. And you, you can see the critical impacts that that shortage has. Uh, you know, one, it's, it's driven up home prices faster than incomes during the, the post-Great Recession period. And that, of course, has uh, led to declines in housing affordability but also just the demographics. You've got more young adults living with their parents. In fact, uh, using 2018 data, uh, we found that uh, we've gone from about one in 10, 25 to 34 year olds living with their parents to one in five. So that rate has, has doubled uh, just over the last couple of decades. So it's, it's a function of uh, at, its, at its base, we're, we're not building enough homes. And if you take a look at this year's data, for example, uh, we expect to build about uh, a little under 900,000 single-family homes this year. And based on demographics, uh, we probably need to be building about 1.1 to 1.2 million. Uh, and that's what's necessary for both population growth, building second homes, and building homes that are removed from the stock due to fires or disaster or just age. So the, the deficit continues, uh, and uh, there's a lot of complicated reasons uh, for uh, for that deficit, uh, but certainly policymakers could help us by helping to bend the cost curve and uh, build more apartments and, and build more single-family homes. Well, let's get into that a little bit as far as like, you know, why isn't it that easy? It, your average consumer would be like, well, we just need more homes. Let's just build more homes, right? <laughs> What's the problem? We've got land, let's build homes. Uh, you know, tell us some of the reasons why it's just not that easy. Yeah, over the last five years, I think we, we learned to categorize this in a kind of an easy to remember way, which was uh, what I was calling the, the five L's. They were the, the limitations on residential construction. Uh, so uh, the first is, is labor. Uh, the industry has faced, uh, for at least the last five years, a skilled labor shortage. Uh, it is something that is ongoing, despite the fact that we have uh, near double digit unemployment in the United States. We need to train workers into the industry. 
Uh, land and lots are scarce in markets where people want to live. And of course that drives up the cost of not just single family homes, but also apartments. Uh, lending to builders is, is a challenge. That's the third L. And often I think in housing, when we think of lending, we obviously think of mortgages, but this is lending to builders, what we call acquisition development and construction loans, AD and C loans. And uh, you know, about three quarters of single family homes, for example, are financed by the builder going to a community bank and getting a loan. And if they can't get that loan, uh, the building simply doesn't take place because the land's not acquired and developed and the construction doesn't take place. So that's been an important uh, limiting factor, uh, particularly since the Great Recession. On the, on the fourth L, it's uh, laws and, and regulatory burdens. And of course, those drive up the cost of construction, which then price out households from the market. Uh, we've done some work over the last few years finding that about a, a quarter of a typical newly built single family home's price is due to various kinds of regulatory burdens at the state, local, and national level. And it's actually even higher for apartments. It's about a third of the typical apartment construction cost. And then the last uh, L uh, is lumber and materials. And clearly when building materials are expensive, uh, it acts as a limiting factor in how much construction can take place. You know, uh, let's let's dive into the, the lumber prices a bit. We reported last week, based on your numbers, um, they've risen so much since COVID-19. Um, can you tell us what the impact those have been on house prices? It's It's been amazing to watch the run-up in lumber prices. Uh, since the, the story that you ran, you know, we, we've got to update those numbers uh, still more, just based on the data that I was looking at this morning. Uh, in terms of current pricing, uh, it's running right now at about a little under $940 per thousand board feet, but that marks almost a 170% increase since mid-April. Uh, so we're, we're, get, we're approaching a near tripling of lumber prices if we continue along this path for a few more weeks. The impact is, as you said, it, it's, it's causing home prices on the, the newly built side to go up. Uh, right now, that impact is easily $16,000 per single family home and about $6,000 for a newly built uh, apartment. So as this filters through the marketplace, it does mean that home buyers are going to have to expect to pay somewhat more uh, for new construction. And we're increasingly hearing about remodeling projects, uh, custom home builds uh, being delayed or deferred in hopes that lumber prices uh, will, will come back down. Uh, the, the challenge is that uh, we, we simply do not produce enough lumber domestically for our needs. Uh, in fact, we, we import about a third of our, our lumber, uh, with the vast majority of that coming from Canada. And unfortunately, the, uh, the Trump administration established a tariff on Canadian lumber. It's a 20% effective tariff rate, and it's one of the factors that causes volatility in, in lumber pricing. So, you know, if we want to improve uh, lumber pricing, if we want to build more homes and apartments, uh, certainly it would help if we suspended those tariffs. Uh, but we also have to find ways to, to increase the output from uh, sawmills. Uh, and that's a labor challenge and as well as a, a regulatory one when it comes to lands that uh, can be used to harvest timber. You know, and thinking about that and what's going on in California right now, too, uh, you know, talked about inventory shortage, we're talking about lumber prices, but a fire, you know, raging fires over large, large areas of our country don't help in either one of those things. Those homes have to be rebuilt, further putting us in the hole for the, for housing inventory. But also, I mean, I, I would think at least some of that is, you know, land that might be used for forestry. I don't know. 
I think that's exactly right. Uh, some uh, European analysts have pointed out that uh, U.S. forestry practices are uh, in desperate need of updating, uh, that uh, in some areas we let uh, forests uh, become too dense and thus they become fire hazards. Uh, clearly one way of, of, of thinning out and, and maintaining and conserving forests would be allowing for some additional harvesting. But whether it's a trade solution or, or a domestic lumber uh, solution, uh, the, the real challenge right now, if you talk to builders, is that their, their costs are going up. Uh, and we know that housing has been a, a bright spot for the economy, but I've been saying in recent weeks that, that that bright spot could flicker if we continue to see lumber price gains. You know, so much of this seems to be very um, policy driven, as, as you've said. So you know, here we have an election coming up pretty quick here. Uh, are, depending on the outcome of that election, do you feel like some of these factors could be uh, much different one way or the other? Or do you feel like, you know, six months from now, no matter who is in the White House or what administration we're, we're living under, that, that some of these issues are the same? I think the easy answer, particularly for an economist, is to say that elections matter, uh, but some of the fundamental forces uh, continue. Um, so, you know, if you, we go back, for example, to the five L's, uh, the, the law and regulatory impact is, is clearly a big one. And that's a case where housing policy is a function of other kinds of policies. So I am concerned about some of the regulatory issues, uh, particularly if we uh, get a switch in the White House uh, where we can see some costs go up. Uh, much of home building are small businesses, uh, that includes remodelers as well. So I'm a little bit concerned about some potential tax hikes uh, that could uh, harm the, the, the business side of the sector. But, you know, we're not Democrats or Republicans, we're, we're housers in this space. And I think if you look at uh, where you've got some of the really tight policy issues that limit the amount of housing that's available, it often comes down to state and local levels. So the focus clearly is on the national election, but it's, it's the, the yard by yard gains at the state and local level and trying, trying to reduce regulatory burdens, fight exclusionary zoning, uh, you know, those kinds of things that, that drive up the cost of construction that really matter uh, for ordinary home buyers and renters. Very interesting. And, and it makes sense, right? Uh, real estate's local, zoning is local. <laughs> Many of these things that are going to impact, you know, what that looks like are local. Um, so thanks for, for giving us that insight. You know, when you consider the challenges facing the traditional building process, I mean, lumber is just one example. What is the appetite for alternatives, whether that's alternative materials or prefab and ship instead of building on site or, or really just considering unorthodox methods altogether? Home building is an interesting sector because we, we haven't seen a lot of gains in productivity, for example, in the sector over the last few decades. It's slow to change. Uh, some of that is uh, decentralization, uh, but some of it's just the hard facts on the ground. Uh, so one area that's received a lot of attention in recent years of dealing with, for example, the, the skilled labor shortage or the, the run-up in, in building material pricing that you mentioned is increasing the share of single-family construction that's built by modular, which is 3D factory-built type home construction, and, and panelized construction. Panelized is 2D, where the, the frames of the home are built in the factory and then assembled on the worksite. The challenge there is that uh, all housing is local, as you mentioned, uh, and uh, uh, the industry is very decentralized. So, so building a centralized factory to service the industry 
doesn't get you a lot of market share right away. And in fact, if you look at the data on the modular and panelized shares of the industry, they're, they're less than 4% of single family construction. So uh, whether it's labor issues or material issues, I, I think there's some possibility for increasing uh, the productivity of the, of the sector through innovation. Uh, I think we'll see some market gains, for example, for modular and panelized, but it's worth keeping in mind in the late 1990s, that 4% share was actually closer to 7%. So it's lower now than it has been historically. So maybe we'll, we'll grow up into the, uh, the high single digits and then that can uh, provide some, some cost benefits in particularly geographically concentrated markets. Thanks for listening to the Daily Download. To hear the rest of the Paris conversation, head over to the Housing News Podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like today's conversation and would love to hear more from Robert Dietz, make sure to join Housing Wire on October 8th for HW Annual, which is Housing Wire's first ever virtual conference that is specifically designed for mortgage executives that are hungry for information as they strategize for 2021 one and beyond. For more information on the conference, make sure to check out housingwire.com. That's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and join us again tomorrow.